Hello, I'm really thrilled that you could uh, come to my lecture um, today. And this is part of a series I'm doing at the Gresham College on evil women. And it's kind of a continuation of the six body parts talks that I gave last year, which you can find on the Gresham website. But this particular lecture, obviously it's part of the Gresham College, but I'm really thrilled to say it's also part of the Being Human Festival. It's a festival of the humanities. Hello and welcome to uh, my next lecture on the series that I'm doing on evil women. And today I want to talk about the evil witch of Snow White. Well, each generation, of course, invents their own kinds of evil. And evil women have incited our imaginations ever since Eve plucked that first apple. But I think one of my favorite evil women is the evil queen in the story of Snow White. She is the archetypical aging woman. She's postmenopausal. She's demonized as the ugly hag, the malicious crone, and of course, the depraved witch. She is evil, she is obscene, and she is threatening because of her familiarities with the dark arts, her skills in making poisonous potions, and of course, her possession of a magic mirror. She is also sexual and aware. Like Eve, she has tasted of the tree of knowledge. Now, her story first roused the imaginations of the Brothers Grimm in 1812 and 1819. And that second version stripped the story of its ribald connotations while retaining and even in some cases augmenting the story's real sadism. Famously, though, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was then set to song by Disney in 1937, a film that is often hailed as the seminal version. Interestingly, you know, this word seminal um, itself, of course, comes from semen. So in other words, is by its nature encoded male. Now, its exploitation by Disney has helped the company generate over $48 billion a year through its movies, theme parks, and memorabilia, such as collectible cards, coloring in books, princess gowns and tiaras, um, dolls, peaked hats, and mirrors. Snow White and the Evil Queen appear in literature, music, dance, theater, the fine arts, television, comics, it's all over the internet. It remains a powerful way to castigate powerful women, as during Hillary Clinton's bid for the White House when she was regularly dubbed the witch. Now, this link between powerful women and evil witchery has made the story popular amongst feminist storytellers keen to show the way the story shapes the way children and adults think about gender and sexuality, class and race. It has even inspired a way of dying. Snow White's story was loved by Alan Turing, the um, inventor, if you like, of modern computing, as well as the mathematician who broke the German Enigma code during the Second World War. 
He was reputedly really fond of reciting two lines from the 1937 film. The lines he loved were, dip the apple in the brew, let the sleeping death seep through. When he was prosecuted for homosexuality and forced to agree to chemical castration, Turing did just that. He committed suicide by biting into an apple laced with cyanide, thus allowing sleeping death to seep through. Now, we are all familiar with the Snow White, the Dwarfs, the Evil Queen, created by the Grimm brothers and by Disney. So today I want to take another route and I want us to listen to the way the poet Anne Sexton, one of the greatest poets in my view of the 20th century, the way she evoked the Evil Queen in her 1971 poem simply entitled Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Here's what she wrote. Once there was a lovely virgin called Snow White. Say she was 13. Her stepmother, a beauty in her own right, though eaten, of course, by age, would hear of no beauty surpassing her own. Beauty is a simple passion. But oh, my friends, in the end, you'll dance with the fire dance in iron shoes. The stepmother had a mirror to which she referred, something like a weather forecast a mirror that proclaimed the one beauty of the land. She would ask, looking glass upon the wall, who is the fairest of us all? And the mirror would reply, you are the fairest of us all. Pride pumped in her like poison. Suddenly one day the mirror replied, Queen, you are full fair, tis true, but Snow White is fairer than you. Now the queen saw brown spots on her hand and four whiskers over her lip, so she condemned Snow White to be hacked to death. So, this is evil. Is there anything more evil than killing your own child? Four times the stepmother attempts to kill Snow White. The first time she orders a huntsman to take Snow White to the woods and kill her. When the huntsman, stunned by Snow White's beauty, takes pity and lets her escape, the evil queen decides to do the dirty deed herself. She attempts to suffocate her with a stay lace made of silk lace woven of many colors. Then she brushes her hair with a bewitched and enchanted comb. Then she gives her a poisonous apple to eat. She nearly succeeds with the apple, the same one that Eve bit into and which led to the banishment of humanity from the Garden of Eden. Um, that was um, the, the lecture I gave last time in the series. You can always watch it on the Gresham website. But what's interesting about these ways that the, the evil queen attempts to kill Snow White is that they are unmistakably feminine modes of committing evil, murder in the guise of false acts of nurturance and mother care. The evil queen also wants to devour Snow White's tender flesh. Is there anything more evil than cannibalism? She orders the huntsman not only to murder Snow White, but to remove her lungs and her liver and deliver them to her. 
after his act of disobedience in freeing Snow White, and surely the Queen's powers are waning when even a servant flouts her will, he presents the Queen with the lungs and liver of a wild boar instead. Believing them to be the organs of the virgin princess, the Queen has them boiled in brine before gobbling them up. It is a particularly dark form of witchcraft, as I argue in my book, what it means to be human, ingesting the body parts of a human or non-human animal is a form of magic, a kind of sympathetic sorcery that transfers the characteristics of the devoured body into the living body. In Totem and Taboo, Sigmund Freud made this observation with regards to the primal father who was feared and envied by other men. In the act of devouring him, the brothers accomplished their identification with him and each one of them acquired a portion of his strength. In this way, cannibalism is a means of ingesting the desirable qualities or desirable characteristics of the other. In the case of the evil queen, Snow White's youth and her beauty. You are what you eat, literally. But should we accept the demonization of the evil queen? Or do the different versions of Snow White tell us more about other people's fears, about the witching powers of aging women? Do they warn us about the valorization of youth, beauty, domesticity? It is of central importance that although the evil queen is one of the two central characters in the story, she is not named in the title. What does her erasure signify? But first, how has the violence in Snow White been interpreted? Well, the most popular versions draw on psychoanalytical insights. In the interpretation of dreams, Sigmund Freud suggested that fairy tales typically involve psychological processes whereby the child falls in love with one parent while hating the other. Bruno Bettelheim uh, developed this interpretation in his book, The Uses of Enchantment. For Bettelheim, fairy tales such as Snow White enabled children, enabled readers to come to terms with forbidden fantasies and desires that cannot be openly acknowledged. For him, the key character is not the evil queen, but Snow White herself who is insanely jealous of the beauty and the power of her stepmother. The Oedipal conflict between mother and daughter cannot be brought into consciousness without threatening the child. So she projects her own feelings onto this parent. The reality, which is 
I am jealous of all the advantages and prerogatives of mother is therefore projected into a wishful thought. Mother is jealous of me. The feeling of inferiority is defensively turned into a feeling of superiority. Bertolem explains this in another passage. He writes, the typical fairy tale splitting of the mother into good, usually dead, mother and an evil stepmother serves the child well. It is not only a means of preserving an internal good mother when the real mother is not all good, but it also permits anger at this bad stepmother without endangering the goodwill of the true mother who is viewed as a different person. Bethlehem harnesses this reading of Snow White to his therapeutic agenda. The magic of Snow White is that it enables the child to work through her feelings of rage and impotence. This can be accomplished without the distress that conscious anxiety would have caused. Bethlehem's argument has been deservedly influential, but should we accept it? At its worst, it is founded on misogynist assumptions about female narcissism and vanity. It is built on a problematic Freudian obsessions with female lack. Women compensating for the lack of a phallus by becoming preoccupied with physical beauty. But the most trenchant criticism of him has come from Mar uh, Marina Warner in a fantastic, I mean, a classic book called From the Beast to the Blonde. Great title, isn't it? <laughs> from the Beast to the Blonde on fairy tales and their tellers. Well, in her words, his argument and its tremendous diffusion and widespread acceptance have effaced from memory the historical reasons for women's cruelty within the home and have made such behavior seem natural, even intrinsic to the mother-child relationship. It has even helped to ratify the expectation of strife as healthy and the resulting hatred as therapeutic. So in other words, Warner is disturbed by the way he accepts and promotes harmful stereotypes about women. She is alarmed by the therapeutic implications of his theory, accusing him of holding girls, mothers, stepmothers responsible for the gendered discrimination that they are subjected to. But I think there's another problem with his account. He assumes that um, stories such as Snow White were addressed to children. In other words, it was a way for girls to unconsciously re relieve their aggression against their mothers and in so doing, resolve their tensions. But that's not quite right. You see, the fairy tales collected and composed by the Brothers Grimm were actually stories for adults, not children. Despite the fact 
that the Brothers Grimm published their collections under the title Nursery and Household Stories. They were intended to be read by adults, as well as intended to um, be a way of preserving folklore. The transformation of the tales into children's stories came later. So, instead of the child needing to work through her destructive longings, perhaps our attention should be focused on homicidal mothers. This is where our evil queen returns to the center stage. Although the queen is unacknowledged in the uh, story's title, whether this is Snow White or Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the story is about the anxieties of mothers. Infants, they are the flesh of their flesh. They literally consume their mother's bodies in a cannibalistic sucking of umbilical blood and breast milk. They figuratively consume the mother's time, labor, love, life. Yet they inevitably, eventually, snub maternal sacrifices. As mothers age, so too do their children. They walk away. Is it any wonder that at each step, the mother might feel murderous, turning yellow and green with envy, like the evil queen looking upon an increasingly independent and beautiful Snow White, she felt her heart heaved in her breast. She hated the girl so much. Her jealousy grew higher and higher in her heart like a weed, she, so she had no peace day or night. This is motherhood as monstrous, a refusal to surrender to the younger, surrender power to the younger generation, and as a consequence, be rendered invisible. The tale then is not so much about providing children with a way of safely fantasizing about hating their mothers, but about mothers safely dreaming about slaughtering their children. It gets more complicated though. After all, the evil queen is not simply a mother. She's a stepmother. Now, this is interesting, I think. That was not always the case. The evil queen was originally Snow White's birth mother. The brothers, the brothers Grimm only made her a stepmother in their revised 1819 version, perhaps because they wanted to avoid insulting their own beloved mother, or because they may have thought a less aggressive, it was a less aggressive script for their more middle-class readers to handle. In either case, the demonization of stepmothers has become a folklore staple appearing, for example, in Cinderella, Hansel and Gretel, The Six Swans, The Juniper Tree, to name just a few. These tales were originally composed and narrated by folk who were all too aware that being female 
was to be born into a society where economic options were radically restricted and the one source of power being able to bear children was fraught with dangers. A frighteningly large proportion of women died in or shortly after childbirth, as did Snow White's mother. In the period when Snow White was being recited around fireplaces and at bedsides, between one-fifth and some historians say as high as 80% of widowers remarried within a year of their spouse's death. Stepmothers, therefore, were a common presence in homes. Given the few options open to girls and women to make their own living independently, these stepmothers were forced to compete for the affection and economic resources held by and unequitably distributed by the pater familias. Maybe we should ask whether the malevolent acts committed by stepmothers were responses to oppressive treatment as opposed to women being the cause of evil. In these contexts, a stepmother might have very good reasons to want to be rid of the offspring of the women who preceded, of the men who preceded her in her husband's bed. Historically, stepchildren had a high death rate. Now, infanticide was not necessary when neglect could have the same outcome. There was even the option of relegating unwanted infants and stepchildren to so-called baby farms which were notorious for high death rates. Indeed, in my next lecture, we're going to be looking at uh, the life of Amelia Dyer, responsible for uh, the deaths of around 400 infants and children who had been dumped in her baby farm. She was actually the most prolific mass murderer in uh, Victorian Britain. So join me on the 14th of January for that. The casual neglect of stepchildren by stepmothers has been explained in more recent um, decades by some evolutionary um, psychologists. They claim that stepparents are less likely to squander resources on children who are not genetically related to them. This means that stepparents are more likely to neglect, abuse, or even kill their stepchildren. Now, I have to put a warning over this. We have to be really careful about this argument. It's not been found um, empirically in uh, many historical contexts, but also this research showing that child neglect and infanticide are most likely when, quote, circumstances reduce a mother's chance of successful investment. In other words, the problem of stepmothers may not be their inherent evilness, but their reduced options and precarious access to resources. In either case, the evil queen is portrayed in Snow White as acting according to type. But what Snow White suggests 
is that there's not such a great chasm between the good mother who dies shortly after Snow White's um, birth and the evil stepmother. As mentioned earlier, the original version of Grimm's tale refers only to Snow White's mother. The stepmother is added in 1819. Snow White's birth mother wishes for a daughter as white as snow, red as blood, blood, black as ebony, and her wish is granted. In the 1819 version, a stepmother is substituted for the birth mother, and seeing how beautiful her stepdaughter has become, her heart turned over in her bosom. The murderous fantasies begin. On the final occasion of murder, when the evil stepmother hands Snow White the poisonous apple, she repeats the words of the good mother. With a terrible laugh, we read, the evil queen cries out, white as snow, red as blood, black as ebony. The dwarfs won't revive you this time. It's a bitter echo of the magical, maternal dreams of her former self, who desired the child with all her heart. The status of stepmother with its radically disempowering potential is augmented with or by damaging tropes about aging. At the heart of Snow White is the valorization of a specific type of youthful beauty. Appearance matters. Unfortunately for her, the evil queen has internalized this distortion. Time and again, she asks, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? With the passing of time, the brutal truth is eventually revealed to her. My queen, you are the fairest one here, but Snow White is a thousand times more fair than you. This causes envy and pride to sprout like weeds in her heart, day and night, she never had a moment's peace. According to this telling, beauty is manifest on the skin's surface. Both the queen and Snow White are there to be looked at. The mirror passes judgment on the queen. Snow White is encased in a glass coffin to be stared at by the prince. This is their shared fate, the fate of being a woman. This superficiality on the surface has another harmful effect. There's no coincidence that the lead character in Snow White is pale with skin as white as snow and cheeks as red as blood. Her hair as black as black as ebony simply offsets the whiteness of her skin. Henri Giroux contends in his discussion of filmic versions of fairy tales like Snow White, he writes, whiteness is universalized through the privileged representation of middle-class social relations, values, and linguistic practices, such as in the films 
American English. To be fully human, then, these stories are telling us, is to be white. Even Disney films like The Lion King, 1994, and Tarzan, 1999, which is set in Africa, contain no black humans. Instead, blackness is associated with witches, wickedness, the underworld, the abyss. The 1937 version of the evil queen has her dressed entirely in black, living in a black castle, surrounded with a black raven, black rats, black bats. Snow White inhabits a white world and is eventually carried away to her rightful station in life by a white prince riding a white stallion galloping towards a white castle. From the opening credits of the 1986 Disney version of Snow White, she's joined by five white doves symbols of gentleness and goodness. In contrast, the first image of the evil queen has her adorned in dark clothes and a black headpiece. In the evil queen's incarnation as a witch, she is draped entirely in black and as she mixes her poison is watched by a black raven. For readers, the message is clear. White is good, black evil. As Jessica Baker Keene and Walter Grant point out in a wonderful article called Disney's Post Question Mark Racial Gaze, these films serve as racial pedagogies. They both reinforce structural and institutional racism and maintain status quo ideologies. The result for children of color is that they are denied positive role models. Instead, their identities are either lapooned by negative stereotypes or rendered invisible altogether. For readers of Snow White, this beauty is not only physical, it is also moral. Snow White is not alone in equating girlish beauty with helplessness and ugliness with women's agency. Female evil is postmenopausal. She is of no use anymore to the fully human, which is male. Evil resides in an aged, bad-tempered and active body. While Snow White skulks in the cabin of the seven dwarfs doing housework <laughs> and passively waiting to be found by her evil stepmother, the evil one is roaming the land. She dons disguises. She hatches monstrous plans, which she then sets out to uh, achieve. Her malevolent powers are masculine. But the evaluation of agency is different for the two sexes. When men take charge, they are praised. The prince, for example, is portrayed in a positive light when he does everything possible to possess Snow White, even after her supposed death. When women actively pursue their desires, they are evil. The evil queen then will have to be punished. 
as we know, when the queen attends the wedding of Snow White to her prince, she is given iron slippers that had already been heated up over a fire of coals. They were brought in with tongs and set right in front of her. She had to put on the red hot iron shoes and dance in them until she dropped to the ground dead. Like the witches at the stake, most of whom were menopausal or aged women, there is a particularly hot hell reserved for women who pursue their cravings. In these stories, female passivity is the ideal. The good woman is compliant and dependent. She's also stupid. After all, why would Snow White repeatedly open the door to danger? She is seduced by stays, a comb and an apple, prompting the, questions, the question, well, what is her life worth? Her most valuable assets are her youth, she's 14 years old in the tale, and beauty. Her bovine domesticity um, is also highly prized. The seven dwarfs need not have been anxious about whether Snow White will take care of our house, cook, make the beds, wash, snow, sew and knit, and will keep everything neat and clean. Because in her dim-witted way, Snow White is happy to do these chores. It's all such good fun. Her presence in the home of the dwarves is, after all, simply an apprenticeship. Heterosexuality is assumed it will so solve every woman's problems, including those of Snow White. As long ago as 1953, Simone de Beauvoir, you can always find something in Simone de Beauvoir's work, what she wrote, that she contended that, quote, everything still encourages the young girl to expect fortune and happiness from some prince charming, rather than to attempt by herself their difficult and uncertain conquest. The reward for girl women like Snow White is marriage. But as we know, Snow White will also age and most likely turn into the evil witch herself. That is, unless she dies, as do all good mothers. This brings me to my final theme. What if Snow White and the Evil Queen are in fact the same person? Women are faced with two options. They can be virginal, sweet and submissive, imprisoned in a childlike state, dependent upon the prince. Or they could be powerful women, active and creative, but derided as witch-like masculine and evil. In the book, The Mad Woman in the Attic, feminist critics Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gopal contended that Snow White is an angel in the house of myth. Not only a child, but as female angels always are, childlike, docile, submissive. By contrast, the queen is a plotter, a plot maker, a schemer, 
a witch, an artist, an impersonator, a woman of infant create, creative energy, witty, wily, and self-absorbed as all artists traditionally are. Is it any wonder that the adult and demonic queen should want to kill the Snow White in herself, the angel who would keep deeds and dramas out of her own house. In this scenario, where stepmother and stepdaughter are complementary aspects of the same person, it is worth asking, well, who is evil? Clearly no one is truly good, <laughs> but evil, evil resides in the monstrous mirror with its shimmering misogyny. It is the mirror that causes all of the harms. The mirror refuses to tell the queen that she is gorgeous as well as powerful. It can only register this superficial beauty. It is the absent yet all-encompassing father who is incapable of recognizing the beauty that is inherent in aging. The mirror is the tool of patriarchy, setting women against each other. Does it have to be this way? Fairy tales, like all stories, do not merely report or reflect um, cultural anxieties, but also create them. This is why subversion is so sweet. Witches are increasingly embracing their own powers. Now, admittedly, <laughs> um, most are less rebellious. Um, in the television uh, program, uh, Bewitched, broadcast between 1964 and 1972, which Samantha Stevens is a cutie pie housewife who uses her powers in positive ways. Her most radical um, action is to gently mock her husband. The girl power of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, 1996 to 2003, and Charmed, 1998 to 2006, are also of a really kind of a Swedish kind. These witches live in traditional homes and are careful not to exert too much anxiety and agency. In other words, they propagate the message that evil queens, well, can be powerful, but only if they maintain a facade of acting in traditional gendered ways. More astute, I think, is the witch in the hit musical of 2003, Wicked. In it, she struggles to be accepted in a world that reviles her difference, that is, her green skin. It's a musical about empowerment, female friendship, inclusivity, and inner goodness as the highest form of, or highest form of beauty, which is exactly why young girls and teenage girls have loved um, the musical. But these stories, all of these stories, I think are reminders that witchery is socially constructed. The evil witch, as witch, as well as stepmother, has been embraced by feminists keen to repudiate traditional forms of femininity and to emphasize female agency outside of the marriage and home model. Now, my personal favorite is this woman here, Joanna Freud, 
Uh, her, um, one of her performance pieces is called The Amorous Stepmother. Freud declares that she aims to save the stepmother from her cultural fate, from her status as a cliched victim of her own monster, beauty. She's quick to insist that this does not mean that she will vindicate the stepmother by remaking her from a martyr into a saint. For the stepmother must remain a provocative figure, as are all archetypes and individuals steeped, steeped in erotic allure. However, she does seek to release the stepmother from the archetype scandalous and perverse essence. Freud's performance then positions the older woman and the stepmother as seductive. The word seduce is from the Latin meaning to lead astray, which is exactly what aging women do. For Freud, the archetype of the aging woman, the stepmother, is drawn from the 1937 film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, where the monstrous beauty of the evil queen is evidenced in her severe features and falsely arced eyebrows. She is a stark contrast to Snow White's creamy, doe-eyed passivity. For Freud, the queen is the true star. She is possessed of a acute intelligence that is burdened by aesthetic, erotic fire. In an older woman, being erotic is not undignified. It is the ultimate in seductiveness. It is the villainous mirror that not only destroys the powerful queen, but denies her the pleasures of intergenerational female closeness. It denies her the erotic possibilities embedded in friendships with daughters, stepdaughters, and their allies. In short, it is the evil queen as witch and stepmother who should be celebrated. She is imperfect, cool, creative. She is aging, but in her wisdom refuses to be erased, as the brother Grimm, Brothers Grimm and their successors have done in their wrongly titled Snow White, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The Queen's ancestors are the feminists who have inverted misogynist tales spawned from old memories of witch hunts. These witches don't tempt young Eves to with poisoned apples. Indeed, they are more likely to seek to fatten them up with tofu. They also shun mirrors, preferring to trust their female companions to tell them that they are truly beautiful. Like the evil queen Snow White, however, they are still feared by male society, reviled for their alleged unattractiveness, and scorned for heretical beliefs. And they are deeply flawed. This is why there is no happy ending. Anne Sexton tells us what to expect. Her poem ends with these lines. 
And thus Snow White became the prince's bride. The wicked queen was invited to the wedding feast, and when she arrived, there were red-hot iron shoes in the manner of red-hot roller skates clamped upon her feet. First your toes will smoke, then and then your heels will turn black, and you will fry upward like a frog, she was told. And so she danced until she was dead. And there we have it. No happily ever after, because women are not free. The evil one is not evil, just a thwarted soul who believed in the evil words spewed forth by the prattling, gabbling mirror. And the good Snow White is not so good after all. She is a beautiful, passive, dumb bunny, as Anne Sexton put it, who is easily tricked by the creative queen before foolishly giving up her life to domestic drudgery. Worse, she doesn't spare a thought for the older woman, dancing in burning shoes at her wedding. She rashly ignores the inevitable. She too will grow old. As Anne, as Anne Sexton concluded her poem. And so the wicked queen danced until she was dead. Meanwhile, Snow White held court, rolling her china blue doll, doll arm eyes open and shut, and sometimes referring to her mirror as women do. Snow White will become the evil.